Welcome to the MNI Market News Podcast. I'm Greg Quinn in Ottawa. With me today is Robert Asselin, Policy Advisor for the Business Council of Canada, which represents many of the nation's largest companies. He's also served in the, as an advisor to Canada's Prime Minister and, uh, and to uh, former Finance Minister uh, Robert. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Greg. Uh, the summer has been eventful in Ottawa, and not just for the forest fires and the tornadoes. It, uh, we had a political cabinet shuffle last week. While several ministers, including the high-profile housing minister, were replaced, key figures in the economy, Christian Freeland and at finance and uh, François-Philippe Champagne at industry or innovation, they stayed in place. I, I guess given voters can see the cost of living and, and the housing problems as, as irritants right now, what's the message being sent to voters here in the economy? Is there a, a clear one? To me, it is clear that from what you said, so no, no big change in the key portfolios, and we need to understand that economic policy in government is set by two principles, and these two principles are the prime minister and the finance minister. So no, obviously no change there, uh, but more importantly, no change in direction. You know, the, this cabinet shuffle was portrayed by the, by the government, the, the, the spin by the government was, uh, we need be- better communicators. And we need to have an, uh, a cabinet that is election ready. And to me, that was quite telling that on the policy side, they don't think a change of direction is necessary, as all they need for them to do better is better communicate, which obviously I have issue with, because I do think, given that the economic situation has changed so much since they came to office, uh, that you do need a change of direction, given high inflation, given monetary policy being very restrictive and putting all these burden on the Bank of Canada to bring back inflation to target. And so in essence, what we've heard from this shuffle is we're not planning to change economic direction, which I think is 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 a policy mistake. People can debate the merits on the politics, but uh, on the policy, which is my kind of area of focus, I, I do think it is a mistake because uh, this government as a a fiscal policy that is not geared to the times we're living in. And I think they don't focus enough on economic growth either. And so these two things combined will be detrimental, I think, to living standards and wages going forward. Let's talk a little bit about uh, inflation or wages. You know, we've seen the voters are upset about that. That comes up in polls and it's been lingering for a while now. You know, I guess we could say gasoline prices have come down a lot, but, you know, high Profile items like groceries are still rising something like 10% a year. Um, housing is its own <laughs> dynamic. Yes. Uh, many young families just find that houses are, are unaffordable now. You know, when we talk about inflation here, is there a risk that we're going to see inflation become a bit more permanent? People are just going to expect prices to go up. So they start paying higher prices and our companies going to see this as well and, and realize that their costs are rising. So they have to push through bigger cost increases. Yes, I do think so. And I think that's a mistake people are, are making when uh, they are pre-celebrating, I guess, the softer landing that most people had imagined. And the problem with that thinking is that because uh, I think central banks are horrified that infl- inflation expectations are still higher than they should be at this point, the, the result, the concrete result is that it, it is more likely than not that interest rate will stay higher for longer, which is not a good outcome when you have very low growth. In other words, uh, you do have stagflation, 
where the economy is anemic and as a result of your fight against inflation, but because you're trying to hold and making sure inflation doesn't go back up, you keep interest rates higher for longer. And I think that's not a great outcome. So if you look at inflation in the last um, months, what we've seen is, as you say, global energy prices coming down quite fast. But uh, I would say uh, good news on the goods, but less good news on services, which remain at 4.2 in Canada, inflation year to year, which is high. As you say, food is very high and nothing more concrete for families than when you go to the grocery or restaurants. Uh, then housing mortgage interest rates, uh, mortgage interest costs are over the roof at 30%. And so even if you bring inflation down to 2%, let's say in a good scenario next year, you're, you, you're going to deal with affordability crisis for many years because obviously what matters is prices and prices have gone up significantly in these key, uh, ish, in these key kind of uh, items, including housing, including food. And so for any given family, it's not because uh, inflation will be, will be brought back to target that life will suddenly become easier for them. The prices will have gone to, in many cases, 15, 20% raise over a few years, which is very difficult. So I, I think, obviously, there's no quick fix to that. And the government will, I think, suffer from that. I suspect this is also why you see the polling numbers being so uh, unfavorable to the liberals right now. To be fair, they do have some accomplishments that I think they would tout and have a lot of basis in, in the numbers. You know, um, unemployment uh, is still quite low. It fell to a record low. You know, they did introduce a lot of stimulus that helped the economy through what could have been a really difficult time with, with COVID. And they announced with big fanfare some big companies coming to Canada in recent months to create more jobs. Uh, now, that's thanks to big subsidies. And inflation has slowed. But as you say, the polls show the Liberals not really getting a lot of credit for that. Why aren't voters looking on, on the bright side? Well, first of all, I think people are anxious vis-a-vis -vis the future. And when you look at what this inflation crisis has done, it has put a huge burden on the younger generation, which uh, essentially got phased out of the housing market, let's be honest, for those who don't own a, a home or house it will be very, very difficult, challenging to do so in the next 10, 15 years because prices are not coming down, especially when you have an immigration policy that brings so many people in. That will just exacerbate, I think, higher demand on housing, obviously. And we're not building nearly enough houses for that demand. And so that gap is going to keep growing. And then you have the affordability, like day-to-day uh, kind of bills that are hard to get through, obviously food being an important one, but everything else. Uh, and so that, I think that's the, the concrete result of, uh, of that. And I would say that the government, although they are taking credit for inflation getting down, everything they've done on the fiscal, on the fiscal side has to make it, has to made it worse. They gave checks to people, although they were targeted at the provincial level and the federal level, they did the same. Essentially, they said to the Bank of Canada, you're, you're the only player on the ice for this, and you have to basically go hard and control this beast, uh, but we're not going to help you, basically. And I feel for the governor of the bank, <laughs> because he has, a lot on his, he has a lot on his shoulders. He needs to get this right. 
uh, so far probably better than people assume in terms of no hard crash. Uh, but as I say, if the, if the result is higher interest rates for longer, this will get trickier and mortgage will get the, renewed at six, 7% and damage will be done on the economic front. So for me, it's almost an academic debate to have a recession for for people to characterize it as a harder landing. If if uh, we don't have growth for the next two, three years, uh, real GDP not growing, and then we have these higher interest rates, I'm not sure we're better off, to be honest. I, I'm interested in returning to what you're saying about growth, but you mentioned the, the Bank of Canada, and and they're certainly in the news in this inflation fight. You know, they've raised interest rates uh, 10 times now. Um, do you sense that the the public places some of the blame for what's gone on on the on the Bank of Canada, and you know, do you think a future government uh, might seek to change the way the Bank of Canada does business as a result? That would be very damaging, Greg. And obviously, the government sets uh, the objective, which is uh, the target range for inflation. I think it's the right target. It, it is democratic to uh, debate it whether two percent is a good target, but this is where governments have settled over the last twenty years, and this is what the bank has to execute on. And so it's not for bank to decide whether two percent is good or not. That's their job. Is if you ask me to go on the ice and score goals, this this is what I need to do. I need to score goals, and so unless the government revisits that, which I think comes with huge trade-offs. EI coming with an inflation target that would be a bit higher, I think that those discussions obviously are not going to happen until the next agreement uh, with the bank. And I think we're, we're in for a few years with the current agreement. And so from my perspective, again, government should at least be a bit more humble about their own uh, fiscal policy and how they actually inflated and not helped on the inflation side. Let's, let's turn back to, to growth here. It's striking in, in the numbers, even through the economic rebound we've had, you know, jobs have come back. Economic growth has, has been quite resilient. Um, the global economy has done better than the dire forecast we had a while ago. But investment in Canada uh, continues to be lackluster. And this is something that was a chronic problem before the pandemic. If, if I go down a list, which you'll be familiar with, you know, we've seen major employers come to Canada, but it's it's been done largely through billion dollar subsidies. Canada nationalized the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The German chancellor came to Canada seemingly to get liquefied natural gas to replace Russian supplies. He came away with seemingly a much smaller deal on on hydrogen-based energy, which isn't something Canada hasn't done very much of before. Uh, Indigenous land claims and activism make basic property rights unclear even to really savvy Canadian firms. The U.S. has been assertive with its green energy subsidies and Buy American programs. You know, is Canada just in a set of policies now that's losing the battle for global investment? And is that the fault of any particular government? Yeah, it's a great question. So a few elements may be in response. First is our nominal GDP is growing because we are we have a very liberal immigration policy. We're, we're getting people in and record paces. And that's why nominally GDP is getting bigger. The problem with this is that as the, the the most important measure of living standards is the GDP per capita, and that is declining. So we are getting poorer and, and visually because the pie is not growing as fast as the population, or not as fast as, as it should, and we're not as productive as we should be. You mentioned business investments. 
Uh, I think there's a lot of problems with regulatory framework in Canada. Things are not being permitted fast enough. So for these kinds of investments you're talking about, if it takes 15 years to build a mine for critical minerals, I think most countries will look elsewhere. That we need to fix, absolutely. The other thing in, on these subsidies is I'm afraid that if, if that's the only strategy you have on growth, what you're doing more or less is labor arbitrage. In other words, uh, you're, su you're subsidizing jobs that might actually might not be might not be net new in the economy just being replaced from a sector to another and just being totally subsidized by the government so i, I i'm not uh, as keen on the strategy as a more fulsome r d industrial research kind of uh chips act mentality on industrial policy which i think we're lacking in canada our r d levels both on public and private are very low and that's going to be a, a significant problem in, an, in a very knowledge-intensive economy. So I think we have a lot of catching up to do. Uh, Canada, obviously, has a lot of what the world needs. Uh, the problem is execution. Can we get this permitting reform on? Can we help Indigenous get loan guarantees so that, uh, again, they are part of, the, of these projects? Are we really a world leader on energy security and providing the world what it needs. Those, I think, for me, are big question marks right now. You mentioned immigration. You know, Canada's bringing in more than a million people in the space of a couple of years, and, and that's something we really haven't seen since probably the Second World War. That has consequences for a lot of things, you know, housing, you know, labor supply, uh, and even even for some people, the fabric of of the nation. But from a, a business perspective, what kind of impact is this going to have? Is it going to be helpful for businesses? So I will say economic immigration is key to our future. There's no doubt about it. Uh, right now, Canada has chose, chose about 60% of its immigrant, a bit lower than that, as economic class. I would argue that we need that number to be higher, hopefully to 65%. Because those uh, economic uh, immigrants are helping a lot on productivity, on innovation, on high-skilled labor that we need, especially in sectors of high demand like cybersecurity and software engineering and that kind of stuff. So I'm hoping the government follows up on that. And then there's the capacity issue to welcome these people. So I think it's great that Canada has, has these ambitious targets. The problem is. We're not following up on the policies that will help these people have a good life here, which is obviously around housing. And I think this problem has been club, you know, covered a lot in the last few months. And so you do need to come up with uh, much more urgency on housing supply. And uh, obviously, this is not just on the federal government. It's mostly at the local level, provincial level. But we need as a, as a country to get real on it because... If that gap between new entries and houses supplies gets getting wider, then we're just going to have a more acute problem on housing affordability. And I see this as a big policy problem. We've mentioned or you've mentioned the idea of consistency in the economic and political message. And you you, you suggested that a lot of the cabinet shuffle was a retooling for an election that if, if the government stays in place for as long as it, it could under a normal mandate would be 2025. I, I guess I should point out for our listeners that Canada's a minority government and 
that there's no guarantee of getting all the way there. For people who are looking at Canadian politics, there's a question of whether Justin Trudeau will serve out his full term and fight the next election. He he says he will, but in Canada, there's no formal mechanism in a way for like a lame duck or victory lap phase. Politically, it seems difficult to say, I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving yet. But we have two big business names in Christian Freeland and, and um, uh, Mr. Champagne, um, who are named in, in the political press as potential successors. I, I, I guess maybe two questions as you can answer them is, do you have a sense that Trudeau is going to fight the next election? And if not, for people who watch Canadian politics, especially outside Canada, people names like Freeland or Champagne who have big business credentials does that credibility in 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 the business world translate a lot in Canada when it comes to Main Street politics? Yeah, good questions. On the first, uh, everything I know about Prime Minister Trudeau makes me believe that uh, he's absolutely running for another term. I think he's shown that he has no intention to leave. And to me, that that's not even an open question anymore. I think, if anything, this last shuffle confirms he wants to control his, his ministers, PMO is fully in charge, and he's absolutely convinced he can win he can win a four terms. And, and I'm sure that's how they are seeing the next few years. So that that I think is a for me almost a solved question. The, the the second is more troubling because it's a result of the first. The more we focus about short term politics in this country and we've had minority governments for a while the less we are focused on long-term policy objectives, unfortunately. And when you look at the trends on real per capita, GDP, when you look at permitting reform, when you look at this energy transition, those are big plays that need long-term execution and planning, right? How do you grow the economy over 10 years, 15 years? And how do you put the policies in place that are conducive to that? If we leave these things aside for short-term politics, and having ministers who are there just to communicate as per the government, that becomes a huge problem. And that's my worry right now. It's a government obsessed with a narrative, but not obsessed with policy objectives. And as a result, uh, might not be effective in tackling these issues we just discussed, you and I, over the last 20 minutes. So th this is where I, I feel that people outside the country uh, should... Um, maybe take pause and uh, seeing that the government is not maybe as focused as it should be on these big structural problems. I think as a general observation, I would say that this is a trend amongst all political parties, not just the one in power, that uh, short-termism is popular and that this kind of a, there's an emergence of false populism that everybody's a worker's party but at the end, they're not putting in place the policies that would make workers uh, be beneficiaries of higher wages and higher living standards. Those, those things have to be done in a very systematic, long-term kind of policy lens way. Understood. Uh, well, perhaps for a source of, of long-term thinking, um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you a question about Quebec and in honor of our uh, Francophone audience uh, in Canada and, and abroad, uh, I'll, I'll switch into my second language here. Uh, Robert, Canada a laissé tomber presque tous les cibles fiscales, mais au Québec, le gouvernement provincial a réussi avec des fonds de génération et des autres mesures. Uh, Madame Freeland pourrait-elle apprendre une leçon pour des budgets canadiens? Très bonne question, Greg. Le, le succès du Québec, c'est que 
il y a eu effectivement des cibles très précises au niveau de la politique budgétaire et que le gouvernement, peu importe le parti, les a respectées, y compris avec l'établissement du Fonds des générations. Et, et le problème qu'il y a au fédéral, c'est qu'il n'y a pas de cible, il n'y a pas d'ancrage budgétaire. Euh, longtemps, le gouvernement a dit en autant que euh, notre dette en fonction du PIB diminue. Euh, on est sur la bonne voie, mais là, ce qu'on voit, c'est que la dette en fonction du PIB euh, augmente et donc leur propre euh, source euh, ou leur propre euh, disons, objectif budgétaire n'est pas respecté. Alors, le, le, je pense que, le, encore une fois, la crise qui est arrivée au Québec dans les années 90 a fait qu'il y a eu un consensus un peu comme il y a eu au Canada quand on a coupé le déficit avec M. Martin et M. Chrétien, que l'action était nécessaire, qu'il fallait ne euh, pas attendre que les agences de notation nous décotent. Et donc, c'est un peu cette mobilisation-là que je pense que ça prendrait. Mais malheureusement, le gouvernement est très nonchalant, le gouvernement libéral fédéral, est très nonchalant sur la question de la dette et des déficits, à mon sens. Merci. Uh, for those of you whose French isn't as good as mine, Robert just told us you should never put pineapple on pizza. <laughs> In a sense, yes. <laughs> um, The, the the last few years have been full of, of surprises. COVID was a very difficult time. So I, I like to sort of wrap up it, it and ask people if there's a, a, a positive trend or positive surprise you're looking out for in the, in the next year in the economy. I will say our potential as a people of Canada. There's not many countries where you have that kind of concentration of talent as a result of our education system that is, you know, fairly good overall compared to many countries, and as a function also of our immigration policy and talent and people that come here. So there's a lot of brain power in Canada uh, and a lot of skilled power in Canada that I feel is underused, but I see that as something that could make us productive, more productive, if we put the right policies, kind of right economic framework around it. So I, I'm hopeful about uh, kind of Canadians Uh, collective potential. I, I, I just, I would just hope that government would become a bit more proactive on, on economic growth and long-term potential. It, it is holding us back a little bit. And I would say specifically on energy transition, we have everything. We have the know-how, we have the resources, we have the renewables, but we, you know, this thing doesn't happen on its own. You have to, you have to make it happen, whether it is. Uh, electrification or efficiency or CCUS, we're going to have to make these plays. We can't wait forever. So I, I hope that we're going to move on this stuff. I can only say that if, if you look at some of the numbers over time, and I think from the OECD about some of the, um, maybe the gaps between investment per worker in Canada and the US, you, you could take that in a discouraging way. But it, as you say, if, if you look at the opportunity that's there, Uh, the potential, it's it's quite large. And, and you know, uh, maybe what you're also saying is there are pockets of the population that have been underemployed over time and, and there's there's definitely potential there. So um, I think yeah. that's that's a, a nice note. Um, so let's let's wrap it up here. This has been the M&I Market News podcast. Uh, you can reach me at feedback at greg.quinn at marketnews.com. If you like the show, tell a friend. I hope to be with you again soon. And, and you, Robert, especially. Thank you for being my guest. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. Merci.